right, and welcome everybody to another episode of EM Over Easy. Tanner and I are here in, I can't say sunny Las Vegas because the sun's going out, but we are in Las Vegas for the USACS Leadership Assembly. Drew is at home working, but we happen to have two awesome guests with us today, two recurring guests. I think this is Pacitti's third time on the show. First time was actually here in Vegas at this hotel. Same room. With Drew, but not Tanner. There's no way it was the same room. It's, it's pretty close. And Rachel. And Rachel, yeah, and, Ra- and Rachel Price. And then John, who is basically our fourth host. Yeah. The, we need to figure out the, some <laughs> title for you down the road. The third reel, the fourth host. What, what yeah. There's got to be like some like CMO, CFO type of acronym we can create <laughs> he's, for he's you. Like, he's our podcast mentor slash uh, confidant slash kind of all the above in terms of uh, things that help out with the podcast. So, guys, thanks for coming on today. John is actually bringing another popular science or popular psychology topic for us to, to, to discuss and we're excited so yeah. i think one of the the last ones we did a, a debunk we did do theory. a debunk we, we debunked a little bit so n- not to completely kill the field that i love uh thought we would do one that's a little more positive and perhaps applicable to the everyday practice of medicine but also um, the practice of everything in life and so i was wondering what you guys might know about the theory of deliberate practice May have heard it, uh, may not have, but just what what comes to mind when you hear that term? Anytime I hear practice, it makes me feel like a mandatory event I have to show up for for baseball um, from back in the college days. So uh, deliberate practice would mean that I deliberately showed up on purpose for this practice that was designed for me by somebody else. I would say showing up with a purpose, I think is a better way to look at it. Um, just showing up is not enough most of the time, right? You can just show up, but if you're there and you're there deliberately for a reason, it makes a little bit of a difference. For me, whenever I heard the word practice, I have to revert back to Allen Iverson. But for more, I me, mean, deliberate practice, uh, there's, I mean, sports. Talk about practice. We're talking about practice. Um, but for me, like sports comes up, you know, it's a common thing we think about the idea that with sports psychology, that come in early, you leave late, you're the first one in the gym. Everything you do is deliberate. Everything you do has a purpose. It's not just to do it, but it's actually for a reason. So I think that is applicable. I think that's where you're going to go with this. Okay. All right. That is an awesome lead in because that's what a lot of people think about deliberate practice when they hear that term. And it's, it's all those things you mentioned are good, right? Showing up and being engaged and, and, and doing, uh, putting yourself out there and, and all those things are very noble, but they have nothing to do with the concept of actually doing deliberate practice. So deliberate practice is actually a concept that was advanced by uh, a researcher named Anders Ericsson. His concept was something that was tied to some popular psychology that you may have heard about, like the 10,000 hour rule. Uh, how long does it take to become good at something? Well, interestingly, if you listen to interviews that he does, he says that his research was was grossly misinterpreted and used to to publish books, which he thinks are great books, but aren't necessarily based on the research that he did. His specific research was actually on the the education theory of deliberate practice, which says that you will get better at things more quickly and you will achieve higher levels of success. If you do targeted practice on each individual task of something with coaching and feedback. 
In other words, it's not just about how much it is that you do. It's also about how you do your practice. So let me give you just a broad example that's commonly used in sports psychology. So if I said to you, you have two players of equal ability, they're twins, they've got the same genetic makeup, they're playing in the exact same conditions. Everything's the same except for two things. For one athlete who, let's just say they play basketball, for one athlete, you put them out and you say, have them throw an average of 200 practice foul shots an hour for eight hours. Or you have another athlete who's the exact same, but he only throws 50 an hour. Who do you think would be better at the end of those eight hours? I think that's actually a really interesting concept because the initial gut reaction I have is, oh, obviously the person who shoots 200 an hour. Mm -hmm. That's a good gut reaction to have because it's the right answer. Because I didn't tell you anything else about what they were doing. That, that was, was, if it was that, just shooting the yeah, free throw. If it's yeah. just shooting the hoops, right? That was going to be my so caveat. Is there's, is right. But he's looking at me like, make? you're a tricky man, Casey. You, yeah. you have some I'm waiting for it to just yeah. psych so manipulate the me. the other shoe. Well, the guy that's doing the 50 shots actually has a coach with him and a ball retriever. And what he's doing is he's making a shot. He's thinking about the shot that he made. His coach is looking at his stance, seeing what he's doing repetitively. He's not worried about going out to, to get the, the foul balls that are rolling all over the court and getting back in, in space and kind of dribbling his way back and getting back in position, right? He's just practicing the skill from that shot, from that line at that distance over and over and over under the guidance of a trusted coach. And so if I added that, now who do you think will be better at the end of, of eight hours? Easily the 50. 50 shots per hour. Yeah, hopefully, right? Hopefully, if the coach is a good coach, coach, right? <laughs> yeah. So if you do what you're supposed to do, um, in most circumstances, the person that did more deliberate practice. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a better player, right? Because other shots, longer shots, shorter shots, trick shots, things like that may not be the same. But for that specific task, deliberate practice would have prepared that player to be more likely to do a better job. So the important thing about deliberate practice is deliberate practice is how you combine every element of what it is you're doing to become a master. So let me give you um, an EM reference that came up, which is what actually uh, sparked sparked my interest in addition to the fact that I just really love the topic of deliberate practice. For those of you, obviously, that listen to other podcasts, Scott Weingart actually makes a reference to deliberate practice when he talks about practicing procedures that you maybe don't do very often or that you want to become really good at, like putting in a central line, right? If you break that down in the individual steps and you get masterful at each piece of that and then assemble that process, you're going to do a lot better. Now, there's some argument about whether or not you can do deliberate practice by yourself. And in the original research that was done, that actually was a component of it. So what would happen is, for example, uh, he looked at professional violin players, not just professional violin players, but the violin players, yeah, the like, violin like, players, like right? Like the pops, yeah, like the... Yeah, and compared them to really amazing violin players that just weren't the best in the world. And the difference between them tended to be how they did their practice and what accumulated there. And so those folks that were at the very tip top of the game would pick apart each individual piece of their performance 
and practice it under the guidance of a coach and refine it and practice it more and then have the coach look at it again and practice it and refine it more until they were masterful at every little component of what they were doing, every note, every transition. And so ultimately over time, that's what created them to be the very best at what they were trying to do. How does visualization play into this? Because I feel like a lot of the stuff I've I've read or or talked with people about on the visualization side of things is that can help improve your efficacy or ability to perform a procedure or something similar. It sounds like the same thing, but I think it's different. It's it is. And that can be a component of your deliberate practice. The imagery, the going through, the mental prep and the setup uh, of going through the steps. For example, uh, we talk a lot with the residents, um, particularly if you have a resident that's struggling with, say, resuscitation. You, you say, okay, let's, let's run through this mental exercise. Let's do this exercise where you walk into the room and a patient is in cardiac arrest. And you step into the room and you see three nurses and all of this equipment. Now, mentally walk through every step of what it is that you want to do and transform the room in your mind as you're doing those things into what it will really look like. And you start talking them through that process. Well, if you think about it, if we do that right in the very beginning, we're actually coaching them, right? We're, we're giving them a, a technique, a process in which to improve their practice capabilities. And then... Over time, they practice on their own in addition to the deliberate practice that you are giving them and the correction that you're giving them as a coach. So the important thing is it's not just practice on their own with visualization, which is what you're talking about. That only helps if they're visualizing and practicing the right thing. So you need somebody to guide them to make sure that they're going in the right direction and that they're practicing the right thing. And then maybe they come back the next week and you say, okay, so, you, you know, let's go through another scenario and you do another, say, simulated resuscitation and they're doing much better, but you notice that they have a lot of hesitancy with giving drug orders or they may not have their their medication down, right? So now the coach would say, okay, so the parts that you're doing well in are here, but here's an area where let's work on getting your drug dosing down so that it flows effortlessly off your tongue. And so when you're practicing your visualization, what I specifically want you to practice is I want you to, in your head, script exactly how it is you're going to order that medicine the nurse, and I want you to say it. And then I want you to go from visualization to actually saying it out loud to your in the mirror to a to a nurse confidant so that you can practice it and then you gradually get better at that process so it's an incremental tool for getting better at the steps of the things that you're doing it sounds like a pretty rigorous medical education model and it is but we often use some variant of it in our everyday teaching right as as physician teachers uh, you often don't necessarily focus on when somebody comes to you and either presents a patient or tells you about something, you actually very seldom provide adequate feedback about the entire encounter that they did. More often than not, what you do is focus on one thing that they did particularly well or particularly poorly, and you try and give them some advice on that. The difference in deliberate feedback is 
if that person, the resident, the student, whoever, then takes that feedback and goes back and works really hard at fixing that one problem and getting better at that one step. That's how deliberate feedback and deliberate practice um, would go hand in hand. The, the practice now would follow that feedback until you achieve mastery. And a lot of that's going to be done on its own without the coach present. I think you bring up a lot of good points. A lot of us that are outside of residency and teaching programs now are on our own. We're flying and we're doing our thing. A lot of us run into issues with this is how I've learned how to do it and this is how I've done it and this is how I do it. And the problem that people run into is, am I doing it correctly? Am right. I st- Is this still the right way to be doing this? And it's easy to go into, this is the way I've always done it. This is how it's done, where there could be other techniques or different procedures, or you may be not even doing it the right way. Whoever taught you the first time may not have taught you the, all the correct uh, procedures. So for me, it brings up, uh, to bring it back to sports or you know golf or whatever, but you can go out and play golf and learn how to play and hit a ball, but you may not be doing it correctly. You go out and get yourself a coach have someone show you what you're doing correctly or incorrectly, make some adjustments and your game improves dramatically. How do we intertwine something like that into a, an attending who is out and practicing to go back and say, am I doing this right? And are some adjustments I can make and there's skills labs. There's, I mean, we go to meetings and stuff together, but you have to make that choice to go and do that. So I, I think it's good for people to hear that what you're doing may be fine, but there's probably other ways you can do it better. So if you go out and attend skills labs and other procedures and conferences, that instills you to, to see what am I doing? How can I do it better? Yeah, absolutely. For me, that's been kind of the funnest thing since graduation is when I go to conferences now, it's fun to go see how other people trained, that how we all have a similar goal, but we get there different ways. And it's good to learn that even though this is the way I was taught by my predecessors, it's good to go listen to other people. And I think it's nice that that really should be the goal is once you graduate, that's why it's called continuing medical education or CME. Now, not all CME meets that, but a lot of them do and, and with deliberate practice. And one thing that kind of came back to me was I'm look, I'm thinking of moments as a resident and even now as an attending where I see a problem as a resident, it was the, I have to fix the way I recess people. And where now it's like, I have to get really better at talking with nurses. Like right. I focused less on the big picture yeah. and more on the small part. Because you get to the big picture by those incremental steps that are actually manageable. And you find that it's much better to give people feedback that way because that's something that they can actually act upon is, is the one step that's going to get them to another. And, and Pasetti and Andy, both to your points, that's why one of the great things that we talk about is actually going to conferences. Uh, but the, the, the fallacy of practice actually goes, we, we, we are more keenly aware of it when you're out of an academic setting. But even within an academic setting, there's this keen, uh, lack of awareness in a lot of cases about how other people do things. Think about uh, what a conference would have been like for you as a student, because I know you guys all went to conferences as students. If you went to the conference, maybe not just with the idea that we all typically have of networking and meeting some new people, but of going and hanging out with other students and learning how they study learning what tips or techniques they use to make their studying more effective. And then what if you had a, had a coach to, to help you through that? Maybe they could be the coach, right? They know the technique. They've practiced it. They're certainly better at it than you are. And they could help you out with maybe how they do their, their studying. And the same thing when you become an attending, uh, going to a conference, one of my favorite things to do 
is to go to a, a sim conference that's done at a very high level where there are incredibly smart people around you that are gifted in the things that they do and they challenge you with really hard cases um, or really simple cases that you can just get into one rabbit hole and and get get off in the wrong direction. And when that happens, um, finding your way back and, and learning how to do that. But if you pay attention the conferences where you leave where that feels like it was valuable was where someone will coach you during the scenario or after the scenario about what you could have done better. And and you take that as coaching and not just feedback, not just, hey, Pacetti, great job with that really challenging case. It was, hey, Pacetti, great job with that really challenging case. You know, you knew your drugs really, really well, man, but you, you struggled a little bit with that central line. That cost you like four or five extra minutes in the case. Obviously, you know how to do it, but, you know, gosh, if you were a little bit faster at that, that would have made your whole resuscitation go a little better. You know, how did you feel during the, the central line? And you go, oh, yeah, man, I didn't really pay attention to it, but I don't really put them in as often as I do when I'm a resident. So maybe I need to go back and practice that skill a little bit. Maybe I need to practice with the equipment that I have at my hospital, which is different than the hospital that I trained at. Those types of things, the coaching moments where then that person can go back and on a very specific task, work to get better at it. That's where you have some great teaching opportunities. Sounds like this blends in very well with some of the other episodes we've done on feedback because you can't have good focused practice if you're not getting good feedback. Right. It's 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 hard to do. But feedback can come in many different forms. And there there are people that will argue one way or another and and that's okay. But what I will say is feedback can also be from things like watching video of contents experts and seeing if what you're doing looks like what they're doing, where you you kind of move into a self-coaching mode. And then if you have a specific question, um, you'd be amazed. I mean, I think we all know how small of a community emergency medicine is. Asking for specific advice um, can oftentimes change the way uh, change the way you're doing things. Imagine if something that you were practicing, maybe you had a procedure that you you were really good at, and now you just don't seem to be very good at. It. Lumbar puncture might be a a great one, right? You it tends to come in runs. But imagine what would happen if the the next time you got ready to do a lumbar puncture, it was actually videotaped, and you sent it back to your residency director or a sim director or somebody to, to coach you to, yeah. to, to coach you on the technique. Hey, you know, I noticed when you, when you went in the first time that you, you numbed L4 and went in L5, right? That sounds and absolutely terrifying. It doesn't it? <laughs> and it, and it, and it impedes our ego, except what if, what if Tanner, your only goal in the world was to get better at LPs and that's what you want to do. You wouldn't then care about that. What you want to know is what's the sauce? How do I, how do I go from this to that? How do I get to where you are? I'm willing to be embarrassed or, you know, looked at funnier or, or, or feel like I'm being, uh, encringed on. And that's where the coaching relationship comes in, right? When it's an area of trust, when you know the person that looking at that has seen a thousand people before that have done the same thing that you have and have done it wrong. And that it's a simple fix and they can tell you the simple thing of, Hey, your needle approach 
is is it going to make it hard for you right you go in with that angle on a patient and it's immediately setting you up for failure why don't you try this technique why don't you try doing this um so again that that trusted coach and that does link back to a lot of the things we've talked about like our our individual council of presidents right there are many people within your life that can be a coach in different areas and keep in mind that the coaching in deliberate practice is usually and almost always only about one specific thing. So it wouldn't be like they're watching you do the whole lumbar puncture from beginning to end. You're washing your hands. You're going to the bathroom when you're done. They they would miss out on all that stuff. And they would pay attention to that one segment in the middle yeah. where you're actually inserting the needle and actually hopefully getting back the, the CSF. I, I think this speaks to the point that maybe too many times as physicians, we talked last time we recorded it was the so what now, that we get board certified and we almost get lazy. Where it's like, well, I've passed boards, I'll get some CME, but we don't actually bring coaching back into our life like when Pacitti uses the golf reference. I mean, you look at golfers who have been able to sustain golf careers into their 50s, it's because they get swing coaches. Yeah. And they get putting coaches. coaches. And they they all have coaches. Another point that I think kind of resonated with me just thinking about this is it's great to have a coach. It's even better to be a coach. And a lot of places that I work – there's there's certain small areas and there's small sites and you have a medical student floating around with another doc or a, a PA or a nurse practitioner or somebody. If you can find somebody when you're going to do a procedure, you're going to do a resuscitation, you pull them into the room with you and now you become the coach. And now you're thinking on a different level of I'm not just going through this is how I always do it. But in your mind, because you're teaching somebody else how to do the procedure at the same time, you're almost taking it to another level which makes you better to, to perform that procedure at the same time. So if you can become a coach, you made to the next level. So if you have a procedure, you have a resuscitation or something, find somebody, whether it's a aspiring nurse that wants to go to a nurse practitioner, whether it's a med student or somebody, bring them into the room with you. And I, I think when I've done procedures that way, it's gone a lot smoother. Absolutely. I mean, I think now is when you would cue the Olympic theme song and you would very fastidiously pull in and and say, you know, think of all the Olympians, right? Think of all the great Olympians that you think that are the highest level of their field. All of them have a coach. Who they, They all have a coach. And so the, the point is to, to achieve the highest level, you, you need coaching. And that goes back to many of the things we've talked about. This is just one way of that coach being able to help you in a technique that's pretty well-founded uh, in science. And probably unlike the last thing we talked about, won't get turned around in you know the next few issues. So even Michael Phelps with his really even long Michael's. limbs and yes. his crazy, weird, his anatomical elastic skin, <laughs> uh, he yes. still needs a coach. Yeah. Very, very apropos uh, <laughs> shout out there. Tanner happens to know that everybody sitting here happens to know that I, I, am, I am completely nerded out by Michael, Michael Phelps. Phelps. <laughs> One of the winningest Olympians of all time. Or yeah, the? I, the? He's the GOAT. <laughs> he is the goat. He basically he basically baws and furs everywhere. No, that's uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Big, big horrible man crush on uh, Michael Phelps. But his again the same thing, right? His coach of many years, Bob Bowman, uh, was with him for a long time and uh, and basically followed him around. And every time he thought he was done learning, something had to adapt. And something had to change. And it's the same thing every time, uh, you know, we think we're, we're good at something. And just think about it. Things that we haven't even started to think about yet. Like when we 
get just a few more years of practice under our belt and our vision starts to change. Maybe the direct laryngoscope isn't going to be as much our friend anymore because we can't get our optic focal length right on and maybe the video scope is going to become a better friend. I'll chime in for Drew right now and say the video laryngoscope is always the better choice. Uh, exactly, exactly. Except You're here in spirit, not. buddy. You're here in spirit. Except when it's not. <laughs> I miss you, Drew. <laughs> well, aren't we doing this live just for Drew? <laughs> yes! <laughs> That's not getting edited out. <laughs> Well, John, we appreciate you coming on. This was a great topic. Uh, it was great to have you back. Episodio, thanks as much as well. And we, only, we don't get to see as much as we used to, but we appreciate you coming on the show. And for those of you that, that listen to the podcast, don't forget to follow us on social media, at EMOverEasy on Twitter and Instagram, and EMOverEasy on Facebook, and our blog site, as Drew would like to say, www.emovereasy.com. Till next time, guys. Thanks so much. Thanks.